good to see everyone again um, for our study. And we've been in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, and so we're going to be uh, finishing that out hopefully today. And um, there's a lot of important truth here. And primarily what we're looking at, guys, is um, not so much the outward aspect of your ministry, even though we will look at that, but it's mainly the inward reality of your own life, your character. And the older that I get, the more important that I, I see character to be. Uh, I've lived, I've been in the ministry for almost four decades. I've seen a lot of men come and go. I've seen a lot of very gifted men, but some of them, at least some of them, were ruined by their lack of character. And um, it's not always that they're, they start off wrong. They become busy. When men become so busy that they can no longer concentrate on their conformity to Christ, there's a problem. There's a real problem. Um, especially for you young guys, not because your generation is any worse than mine, but it is a generation of uh, busy, but also preoccupied. And then also, uh, many times a man who is uh, in the ministry is judged by his supposed success. You know, how big is his church? Uh, how big is his some silly internet following? And all of that is so wrong and it, it leads us um, to begin to replace priorities with things that aren't really that important. If you will just concentrate on the main thing, and that is knowing Christ and being conformed to the image of Christ, then God will use you. God will use you. So let's start in chapter four. Again, in verse one, we went through this, but we'll just briefly read it. But the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, if you were, <laughs> if you were in your present state, in a, in a perfect world with no opposition, you would still have struggles. Because even in the most mature believer, there is still this remnant of what we call the flesh that fights against God's work in our life. But the fact of the matter is, you're not carrying out your ministry in a perfect world. You're carrying out your ministry in a fallen world. First uh, John tells us that the whole world lies in the power, you know, of the evil one. When it talks about the world there, it's not just speaking geographically, but the world's systems. Um, it's politic, it's culture, uh, it's media, everything. There's a real sense in which you can see the devil's hand in all of it. So when you go out to preach the gospel, uh, sometimes you're like a man who's trying to save a dog that's been run over by a car. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I have. And the animal is angry, hurting, and when you reach down to pick it up to pull it off the road so that it's not killed, it will bite you. And so we have a world full of sinners that are in opposition to us. And then there is the unseen world, 
which oftentimes some people talk too much about the unseen world and in an unbiblical way, and others don't, don't realize that it's, it's there. It really is, and it fights against us. Now, he talks about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The word deceitful here again is so important. Why? The devil is the father of what? He's the father of lies. And you're going to see this in every opposition that comes against you. There's going to be lies. There's going to be deception. There's going to be theological error. Now, and he goes on and he tells how do these spirits and doctrines of demons, how do they make their way into this world? Verse two, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Sometimes it's really hard for sheep to understand goats. Um, we all know, we look in the mirror, if we're truly converted and we see all kinds of sin and flaws and uh, lack of maturity, lack of wisdom, we see those things in us. And we expect in some ways that, that other people uh, are as conscientious, that they're looking in the mirror, that they see their faults and. And what we don't realize is there's a lot of men that have entered into the church and are even in the ministry that when they look in the mirror, they see no fault. Now, they may say that they see a fault just because they realize that's the biblical thing to do, but they're really not broken men. And, and sometime, if you haven't already, sooner or later in the ministry, you're going to be challenged by men like this. And... Um, it's going to surprise you and it's going to reveal also how naive you are. And you're going to think it can't be possible that someone would really act this way, but you're going to find out that yes. So what you need to do is maintain your relationship with Christ and maintain your integrity and realize that when they bury you one day, there's going to be a lot of pain in your heart. Over broken relationships, over fights, um, over persons lost. And so um, it's a battle and it's always going to be a battle. Um, someone said one time that the world's always at war. And if a day goes by that there's no shooting, it's just because everyone is reloading their gun. And that's the kind of way it is in the ministry. Unless, of course, you're not doing God's will. <laughs> if you're not doing God's will, well, then, yeah, it can be pretty easy. It can be pretty easy. So verse three, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Um, there are always these men in which the emphasis is not the gospel. The emphasis is not Christ. It's something else. And it's usually something that they see as that which will set them apart from everyone else and prove that they're special and prove that they're not like anyone else. They'll always turn to these minor issues. Again, I've seen it over and over again in my life. Now, there's a warning here for all of us, and that is Paul is talking about doctrines of demons in verse one, and then he talks about just abstaining from food. That doesn't sound like some demonic doctrine. But what you need to understand, and I said this in our last lesson, but it's so important, anything in your ministry that takes priority over the gospel is demonic. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I, uh, let, let me give an example. Homeschool, it can be a very, very good thing. But I know people that if you, <laughs> if you ask them you, you know, to tell you when they were converted, they'll give you the year that they started homeschooling. And it's not the same thing. Um, also, people with regard to the law or regard to principles or things like that. The law is extremely important. And seeking to understand the law and apply it in our gospel age is also very important. But nothing takes priority over the gospel, over Christ in us, the hope of glory. And um, so now uh, verse six, we touched on it last in our last study. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now here we have two things going on. Um, we have the inward and the outward. We're gonna see Timothy and the minister of Christ has to feed himself as he cares for others. And, and that's just a fact. And so he says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. First of all, I just wanna say this. You know, a lot of people want a lot of accolades. You know, they want to be famous for something. Famous on the internet, famous for their social media following, famous for having a big church. You know what our goal should be? To be a good servant of Christ Jesus in the eyes of God. Here's something that will really, as a minister, will really, really help you order your steps. The God who sees. If you, everybody, again, um, how can I say this? You don't have to be important. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be well known. You have to live in light of the reality that God is watching you. God is seeing you. So let's say that there's a man who's extremely well known for his preaching. He prays very little. Um, and then there's another man who's not very well known, but he prays a great deal. He dwells with God. He loves his wife in an extraordinary way. You see, if, if we're trying to measure our ministries by who sees us, like the multitude that sees us, we're going to go wrong and we're going to begin to practice wrong things. What we've got to do is realize God is always watching. No one else has to see it. God is always watching. And on the day, the final day, it will be revealed. What you do in secret will be revealed. And that can be very, very encouraging. And in some ways it can be a little bit intimidating. And so he goes on in, in verse six, he says, in pointing out these things, present tense, in constantly pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant. Pointing them out, pointing what out? Basically making the gospel a priority. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ if you will keep your church from being distracted on the minor issues and keep them focused on what really matters. And it is the gospel and the gospel's working out in our lives in the new covenant.
So now he, he talks about what you should be constantly doing, but then he also constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Um, be very careful if, if your life is one of preparing sermons. Um, we, we need to prepare sermons, but we need to be prepared by the word of God. Not only should we prepare, but we should be prepared by God. We, we need God to act upon us and God acts upon us through the scriptures. Um, you can say, well, I know the scriptures. OK, but are you nourished by the scriptures? Are you fed by the scriptures? Um, and that requires, I believe, a constant reading. A constant reading, a constant meditating to feed upon them. Now, I mentioned this, I think, a bit. But it's not enough. A lot of men make a mistake in their sermon preparation. They get the Greek and the Hebrew right. They make sure that they've correctly interpreted. They get their outline. Everything's ready to go. And it's usually ready to go by Saturday, but they really haven't spent much time feeding. Feeding. You need to feed God's people only what you have fed on yourself that week. And I want you to do your Greek work and your Hebrew work, and I want you to really know the passage and things like that. But if it doesn't warm your soul, if it doesn't feed you, your mind and your heart, don't expect it to do so on Sunday. So you need to reserve at least one day or two. Get all your work done. So that you can spend a few hours each day just feeding upon it. Feeding upon it. How does it warm your soul? How does it encourage you? How does it rebuke you? How does it teach you? What has it done to you? How does it change you? This word nourished here is, is very, very important. Now, of course, when he says nourished on the words of faith, he's not talking about, you know, the charismatic idea of proclaiming some word of faith. But he's talking about the faith. Be nourished on the words of the Christian faith, the great doctrines. And then he goes on to iterate that the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, when you prepare a sermon, and you come to its applications and everything. You need to ask yourself, am I following this? Am I following it? And if I'm not, how can I make the necessary navigational corrections so that I am following it? Now, now we'll go on to verse seven. He says, but have nothing to do with worldly fables. So do you see the, the great contrast he's making here? It is extremely great contrast. Um, there's the words of the faith and the sound doctrine that is according to the gospel, according to scripture. And he puts that in contrast with worldly fables fit only for old women. OK. Now. So how do how do we apply this? Um, well, first of all, let me read something I have in my notes. Um, in the immediate context, worldly fables probably referred to, it's a good chance, 
to mythical stories built on the Old Testament history are built on genealogies that led, later on became kind of Gnostic heresies. Just all kinds of silly things. I can imagine, you know, uh, things like people today, you know, the hidden message, <laughs> you know, reading between the lines, uh, numerology, uh, these numbers line up, you know, look at the barcode on your food, and you know, just all kinds of things. And some of them, as crazy as they sound, may have some truth to it, but that's not our job. That's not our job. But there's, there's one way where this really, really, in my opinion, strongly applies, and that is with regard to modern psychology, sociology, and the cultural mores, mores of our time. Um, if there ever was a time, I mean, I, I never expected this, I, I can be honest with you, um, that the West, particularly, has lost its mind. I mean, it's gotten to the point of insanity. You know, uh, Christian philosophers, even some secular philosophers, as far back as the 40s and 50s, warned us about postmodernism, about the loss of absolutes. And I don't think any of us really took it that serious, you know. We never thought, at least I never thought, that the world could become as crazy. It, now people can, you know, a man can identify as a woman. Uh, the government can't even say what a woman is. Uh, and now children and adults are identifying as animals so that in some schools they're putting litter boxes uh, in the bathroom for children who think they're cats or dogs to go to the bathroom. And it's being applauded. And so what you have to realize is that, that culture, even when it's extreme, has a way of making it into the church. And, and people trying to take, you know, for example, one of the great battles in the patristics was not just regarding the person of Christ, but trying to adapt the Christian faith to uh, kind of a platonic philosophy, you see. And in doing that, losing a great deal of the Christian faith. And so we need to be constantly aware of these things. And we need to be pointing them out. We need to be pointing them out. Um, you know, if, if you give a biblical view of manhood today, it's going to be scandalous. I mean, they could take you off social media. <laughs> it's reached the point where they could put you in jail for hate speech. If you just speak about biblical manhood. If you speak about biblical womanhood. If you speak about marriage between a man and a woman. If you say that certain things are nonsensical. Absurd, uh, contra nature, but, but we have to do these things. We have to point them out. We have to point them out. And it's going to require a great deal of wisdom. Why? We should not be attempting to hide things. Don't, don't do that. Yet at the same time, don't go out looking for trouble either. Remember, when you're preaching as a pastor, you're primarily preaching to the church. Don't be preaching to the internet. Preach to your church. 
there's a few young men that I have my eye on in, uh, in Christianity today, and they're, they're kind of scaring me because I felt like they really had a lot of promise, and they still may, but they're too self-promoting on the Internet. They're driving their Internet ministry, and they shouldn't be doing that. They should be driving their ministry to the church. Very, 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 very important. Now, I want to uh, show you a passage that to me has always been tremendously impactful, tremendously impactful. And I want you to look at Isaiah chapter eight, verses 19 and 20. He says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. This is a powerful passage with regard to social sciences that are are without a doubt anti-Christian and anti-scientific that are driven by political jargon and to promote political manipulation. We as Christians should be very, very thankful for true science. We should be very, very thankful for um, advances in medicine. But we need to be very, very careful with regard to what is science and what is truly medicinal as opposed to harmful. And so with regard to scripture, we need to constantly be preaching it, preaching it, preaching it. Don't always be fighting these things that are coming into the church. If you preach the truth, you'll have to fight a lot less. You know, it's that old illustration of, you know, you could give a group of people a bunch of counterfeit money and let them feel it so that they can identify counterfeit money. Or you can give them real money and let them touch it and feel it. And um, they never have to touch a fake bill because the moment a fake bill comes, they'll realize it's not real because they know what real is. Very, very important. Now, Paul's command to reject worldly fables here is in the present tense. You're going to have to do it constantly. And, and, and brethren, let, let me say something to you. This is so important. Don't think that your generation is unusual. You may think, you know, it looks like Jesus is coming back. Well, he may. He may come back before I finish this sermon. And that would be wonderful to some degree. Now, but here's what I want you to see. He's talking about a battlefield that began with the coming, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Messiah. It is a battlefield. The last days began with the coming of Christ and they will end with the second coming of Christ. So whatever battles you have to face, they may take something of a different form, but they're no different than what was being faced in the first century. And they're no different from what I had to face when I was your age. Let me give you an example. In kind of the, the 80s to some degree, the, the late 70s and the 80s, there, something happened in America. At least it's what I seem to see. Um, so 
in the roaring 20s, 1920s, they were so vile. Oh, unbelievably so. The roaring 20s, it was a sickening, vile, decadent um, decade. And then there was a cultural reaction to it. The drunkenness, the sexuality, everything, along with the depression and a world war that brought in more of a conservative politic and a conservative lifestyle, a promotion of wholesomeness and morality. And then, you know, back in the, in the 80s, and, uh, it was like evangelicalism in America was so strong. It was, you know, churches were big and, and uh, the politicians, man, they listened, you know, they, they feared the evangelical movement and all this type of thing. And you say, well, that was better than what we have now. Well, not necessarily. The culture was just as much in the church as it is now. It was just different. There was easy believism. Uh, political conservative stance was considered equal with Christianity and vice versa. And it had all the kinds of problems that shouldn't have been there if preachers would have been preaching the truth. Now, your generation is different. You're coming out of that, you know, age of reaction against ungodliness. And you're falling back into ungodliness, but far worse than anything anyone would have ever imagined. So the battle for true ministers has always been to protect the church, and it always will be. So even though your, your job is difficult, it's not that different from any other minister that had to live in this world in the last 2,000 years. Now, let's read verse 7 but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Notice he doesn't say preach expository messages. He doesn't just say study the Bible. He doesn't just say pray. Even all those are exceptionally important. But what he does say is this, discipline your own body. Now, guys, listen to me. Sometimes we are so concerned with what's going on around us. In our immediate context, in the church, relationships, in a further context in the world. We look out and we see the news and we see the evil and the darkness and the wickedness. We see the problems, the immaturity in the church, and we're always trying to strive to fix it. But are you looking inward? Are you looking inward? Are you trying to fix? Are you laboring and striving to fix what's inside of you that's wrong? In, in your manner of thinking. In your response to situations. In your relationships, particularly with your wife and your children. The people of God. And then going out from there into all manner and types of people in the world. What are you doing? How much are you investing in your own growth? You know, I have always said, well, at least for many, many years I have said, the, sometimes seminaries are really, really criticized, and some of them ought to be, those that are liberal or purely academic. Um, but there are a lot of good seminaries that come under a lot of critique. 
And one of the reasons I think they come under critique is because people are judging them for something that they were never, could never possibly do. A seminary cannot prepare you for the ministry. You need to recognize that. Seminaries need to recognize that and churches need to recognize it. Nothing can prepare you for the ministry. Seminary, in my opinion, a good seminary, it simply gives you the right tools so that you can spend the rest of your life preparing. Do you see the difference? Here's what happens. A lot of people go to seminary. They go to Bible college. They go to seminary. They study very hard. And then the moment they get their degree, they stop learning. They stop preparing. You know, that's like going to a class in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and then you get your black belt and you just stop. And, and if you stop, you're not only going to not maintain, you're going to regress. Do you see? So what, what we need to see is that there needs to be a discipline in our life, not just to prepare sermons, not just to intercede, but a discipline in our lives to make us more Christ-like. We ought to be laboring at that. I get up almost, you know, five, six times a week. I get up at around 4.30 in the morning. I go to a gym. I do that because it's discipline. I do it because... Um, my body has arthritis and everything else, and I've, I've just got to keep moving. So I got to keep lifting. I got to keep, you know, on the treadmill. I got to keep doing what I can. But there are guys in that gym, and I'm not faulting them, but I mean, they'll be there two hours a day, six days a week, and they are training themselves. Um, I can see through the window swimmers competitive swimmers, and they are there at five in the morning in that cold water in the winter training themselves. There are power lifters, and they're in their power lifting. There are the bodybuilder guys, and they're in there getting uh, really big. If we apply, most men of God, they study the Bible just to teach it. Do you see the error there? How many are studying the Bible to be changed by it? You know, um, I know a, I know a little bit about weightlifting and the nutrition that comes with it. Uh, those guys eat about six times a day. They spend a great deal of time in the evening preparing their meals for the next day. They've got it down to a science of how many hours apart do they eat? What do they eat? When do they eat it? their supplements, everything. It is like clockwork every day in order to achieve a goal that is not eternal by any means. If we applied the same, how different would we be? Now, he says here, he says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Old women really aren't in training, are they? He says, have nothing to do with that. And then again, the counter on the other hand, very strong language. On the other hand, what should you be doing? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You know, there there's there's a form of Christianity out there that's basically let go and let God, you know, <laughs> um, well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, we should let go of our anxiety and let go of sin. We should rest in God. 
But the scriptures make it quite clear that we are to be quite proactive in growing. Very proactive. And he says it here. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, I'm going to take a small break for about two or three minutes. And then we'll come back and we'll pick it up here. Um, I want to make these a little bit shorter so that people don't have to listen for two and a half hours. Okay? So let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that you will bless your men. Bless your people through them. In Jesus' name, amen.